our world is in trouble. Society is full of noise, darkness, and distraction. Where do you go to find the hope and the strength to cope with such a mess? Join our weekly conversation and think about the Bible like you never have before. Listen, watch, and interact with us at ChristianQuestions.com. You're listening to Christian Questions. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Daniel Webster once said, How little do they see what really is who frame their hasty judgment upon that which seems. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. We thank you for joining us today. Talk to us anytime with your feedback or questions at ChristianQuestions.com and all of our social media channels. Make sure to continue your Bible study after today's episode with our comprehensive CQ Rewind show notes, where we visually and contextually map out this episode's content, always available on our website and our Insider Weekly newsletter. Plus, make sure to check out our YouTube channel for new videos every week featuring the CQ Kids series, our Moments That Matter series, CQ Bible 101, and much, much more at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. So, Jonathan, what's happening? What are we talking about today? Well, Rick, our question is, does God judge everyone the same way? And our theme text is found in First Chronicles chapter 16, verses 32 and 33. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. So again, the question, does God judge everyone the same way? The Bible says that righteousness and judgment are the foundation of God's throne. This picture language shows that that God does indeed judge everyone and everything, and his judgments are based on that which is right and equitable. So how does it work? Does God have a rubber stamp approach as he looks at people, governments, institutions, and angels that proclaims guilty or innocent? Not at all. On the contrary, God's approach to and methods for judgment are varied and even complex. So coming up in today's podcast, when we proclaim God's judgment and retribution is simple and universal, we actually do him a tremendous disservice. That may come as a surprise. 6,000 years of human experience with sin and death will not fit into such a small and neat little box. Today, we're going to examine how God judges five different categories of people and systems, beginning with his judgment upon Israel for rejecting Jesus. Was he harsh with them by casting them off? What about how God handles true Christianity? Segment two focuses on the way those who are striving to be true to Christ are evaluated. Segment three takes on Christian systems that are not Christ-like. What's their destiny? Is God angry? And how about the everyone else category, especially those who don't know the name of Jesus? Segment four reveals God's perspective on them, and this is a really important segment. And then finally, what about the governments of this world? Are any of them changeable in the hands of God and able to be turned toward his honor, or are they all doomed? That will be covered in our final segment. So Jonathan, once again, Does God judge everyone the same way? This is a big subject. Okay, so Rick, how do we sort this all out? 
Who gets judged when? How does it happen? And what are they scrutinized for? How do we decipher God's patterns of judgment so we can appreciate his unbiased conclusions? Okay, so you just made it bigger. Thank you. (laughs) There's a lot to talk about. There's a lot of detail here. So we're going to touch on many, many, many different aspects of God's judgment. And the, 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 the hope here is to give you lots to work with and lots to think about. And we certainly would love to hear your reactions and responses, questions, and disagreements uh, to how we're going to approach this today. So, Jonathan, here's the thing. There's ma- there are many judgments of God that we are not going to spend time on today. You just can't cover them all in one podcast. These judgments we're not going to be talking about often happen because of deeply heinous moral sin or opposition to God's chosen people. The key point to remember with all of these judgments that we're not talking about, none of these judgments were final. Rick, wait, what do you mean by that, not final? Well, Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? Sodom and Gomorrah were judged to destruction, and Jesus himself tells us that they have opportunity in the day of judgment. He It'll says, be more tolerable for them. Yes. Is that what he said, wasn't yes, it? Yes, yes. So, and we're not talking about that. That's subject for a whole different podcast. So we're going to hone in on very specific groups because God's judgments do vary depending on the group, the individuals, or the system that he's looking at. So in the examples we are covering today, God's judgment is always focused upon those who should know better based on their experience and the context of their lives. And I'm putting the emphasis on should know better. Uh, (laughs) So it's kind of a loosely fitting template here we're using. Uh, So let's get into our first judgment for today. What's the the first judgment for consideration today? Well, Rick, Israel as a nation. And so we're going to just start with what are the consequences? Well, they're set out by John the Baptist in Matthew 3, verse 12 his winnowing fork in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Unquenchable fire. There's a lot of talk in Christianity about that word. It's interesting. What's the Greek word, the actual Greek word for unquenchable fire? Not extinguished. Right. Okay. The actual word, though, is asbestos. Oh, yes. Okay. And so this is used as a, it, it says, as a negative participle of asbestos. Now, asbestos uh, will keep fire from spreading. So not quenchable. It's like, you know, it, it's, it, it's the negative of the, what asbestos does. Is it contained? Yes. Oh, okay. So, so it's kind of an interesting thing. Unquenchable fire. The point of it is the fire does its work. Okay, the fire does its work. So we're looking at Israel as a nation, and you know John the Baptist is setting out a pretty strong uh, thought here that doesn't sound so good. So let's get specific. We each judgment we're going to break into into pieces. You know we're going to look at what's being judged. We're going to go through who specifically is being judged, what were they judged for, and where did their judgment bring them, and was it equitable? Those are the three big questions. So with the nation of Israel specifically, Jonathan who's specifically being judged, because we've got to break it down and know exactly who we're talking about. Well, Rick, the leaders and the nation of Israel related to the coming of Jesus. Okay, so we're specifically focusing on those who were there um, when Jesus appeared. Okay, Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. This is John the Baptist again as he's doing the preaching to introduce Jesus. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, 
He said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now think about this. He's out there. He's encouraging everybody, right? He's saying, hey, come to me and repent for your sins. He sees the Pharisees and Sadducees come up. And instead of saying, hey, come down, repent for your sins, he says, you brood of vipers. I mean, that gets your attention, right? <laughs> He's, oh, they were not happy to hear that. No, they weren't. And, 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 he, and John the Baptist was pretty much afraid of nothing. Verses 9 through 11, he goes on. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. So John tells them right from the start that God was bringing them change and blessing if they would have it. If. That's right. a big if. And that's why he got their attention. You brood of vipers, who can keep warning you to flee from the wrath to come? You know, you've got to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He knew that their hearts were off. And so he was giving them that wake-up call right from the start. So specifically, you're looking at the leadership of Israel being judged more harshly than the nation, although the nation's included in this as, as you know, the, the big picture. But you've got the leadership really being focused on. So we've got John the Baptist sort of setting the stage. What were they judged for? Well, Rick, deep hypocrisy and lawlessness towards the law they were to keep. So they were being judged because they weren't keeping the thing they already knew they were supposed to keep. Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28. Jesus, see, John set it up, and now Jesus kind of brings it home. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So they were not responsive to the law because they were keeping it on the surface. And Jesus was calling them out on, out on that. I mean, think about this. How many miracles, how many teachings, how many parables, how many debates did they see which all proved that Jesus was their long-awaited Messiah? Tons, Rick, tons. <laughs> yeah. And, and think about it. To ignore the miracles is harder than acknowledging them. Yeah, yeah. You, you think about the, the, the man who was, who was blind from birth, and, and Jesus heals him, and then, you know, the Pharisees are questioning him. And the man says, and, you know, and I'm paraphrasing dramatically here, but he says, wait a minute, let me get this straight. You can't see that I can see? What is going on? That's basically what he said to them. You're I can right. never see. What, how can you not say God is in this? And, you know, so you're right. It's harder to, to not acknowledge those things. And so they were against Jesus, and they built their case on false thinking and pride and, 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 and the, the sense of being in power. And what does that do? Where did, it all, where did their judgment bring them to? And then the, the question is, was God's judgment equitable? So where did their judgment bring them to, and was it equitable? They were brought to a permanent transition, the end of an age of sole nation privilege and the beginning of another age of privilege based upon grace through Jesus. So it brought them to the end of a time 
where they were the only favored ones. Let's go back. We already read it, but Matthew 3.10, John the Baptist, again, just reminding us what, what's happening here. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And they were clearly a tree that was not bearing good fruit. And Jesus finishes that off. You know, we were in Matthew 23. We read already 27 to 28. We jump down to Matthew 23, 37 to 38. This is the conclusion of their national judgment at that time. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. And you notice that he's, he's, he's talking to Jerusalem, and I would have wanted to gather your children together, the, the people, but you wouldn't. So he's saying that the system of government in Israel at the time was thoroughly corrupt, and it would cost them and all of their people. And it was a dramatic, hard judgment. It was an equitable judgment, though, because they had ample time, ample proof, ample understanding. Jesus was literally right in front of them. So what is the equitable judgment lesson here? Well, Rick, God gave the spiritual leaders and the nation of Israel a three-and-a-half-year witness of concentrated, unmistakable, godliness and miracles while the leaders of the nation cast Jesus off and lost a significant privilege. God did not renege on his promise to them as given to Abraham, a strong judgment that is righteously placed. Now, you're saying that God didn't renege on a promise given to Abraham. We haven't even talked about that. That's coming up later on in the program and in, in segment five. So we've got to stick around for that because that completes the picture of what happens to the nation of Israel. It's a harsh judgment. It's a hard judgment. It's a necessary judgment. But there's grace attached to it. And that's the thing that we have to understand about God's judgment in this particular case. So... Uh, in this particular hard judgment of God has obvious mercy attached sure makes you want to think about how you judge God's judgment upon Israel resulted in their loss of his favor if they lost it where did God bring it we're excited to be hearing from our growing listening audience at ChristianQuestions.com through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also chat with us now during the live broadcast. You know what would be really awesome? If you can leave us a review when you subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and others. It helps us reach even more people. Thank you for subscribing and reviewing. Now, let's take the next steps in our comprehensive conversation. It's humbling to realize that we as Christians are only called to follow Jesus in a self-sacrificing way now as a result of Israel's blunder. If they were accountable to a high standard based on the obvious circumstances of the time in which they lived, we must also have a high level of accountability here and now. And, and Jonathan, that's one of the things that in our this, this, this segment now, we have to be really, really understanding. We always look at Israel and we say, oh boy, you should have done better. You should have seen it. You should have known. You should have, you should have, you should have. Well, what's our segment ju second judgment for consideration today? Jesus, true followers. Okay, and what are the consequences? Immortal life or eternal death. So there's nothing in between? No. 
Okay, immortal life or eternal death. Revelation 2.10 is, a, is, a, is the, a good picture of that immortal life. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life. There's something special about this crown of life. And then the eternal death part. This is depressing, but it's true. What is it? For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And that's Hebrews 10, 26. And the point is that we need to be clear on what is happening with us if we are true Christians and truly following Christ. And, and look, Jonathan, I want to set it up right here and right now. This is not, this segment is not talking about the judgment to those who sort of show up at church here and there. I don't think they're part of this judgment. Now, there's a lot of Christians that would see, see it differently. But let's, let's set the ground rules for how we see this, this unfolding. We're talking about those who are begotten of God's Spirit, who are really, truly called to follow after Jesus in a sacrificial way. Okay? So, specifically, I kind of answered my own question, but let me ask it anyway. Who is being judged? The individual called out followers of Christ. They are... An on, in an ongoing judgment to choose who of the called will become inheritors of immortality. Okay, the individual called out followers of Christ. And we, we phrase it that way very, very specifically. Go ahead. And, and the scripture reminds us, many are called, but few are chosen. Right. There's a high degree a high level that we must attain to to be faithful. Right, right. So this is no this is no easy matter. This is no walk in the park. This is no, oh, believe on Jesus, wave your hands, and you're going to heaven. No. That's not what this is, okay? We know that from many, many, many scriptures, of which we're just going to quote just a few today. Let's start with Second Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Let's just start with verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for God's own possession. See, when you see that phrase, a people for God's own possession, you think about the Jewish nation. And you think about how, how hard he was on them. You know, so if, if we are called to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, this is not, this is not the walk in the park. This is not the, wow, this is going to be all, all rose petals and, and, uh, you know, and, and uh, Slurpees to drink. You know, this is not. It makes me think of accountability, right? Yeah. Yeah. In a deep, deep sense. Verse 10 and 11 from, uh, 1 Peter 2. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. You know, he doesn't say, you know, and if you get around to it, you probably want to avoid fleshly lusts, you know, if you think about it, you know, if it comes into the forefront of your mind. He's saying, I urge you, you're aliens and strangers in this world. Avoid those things because they wage war against your being, your your soul, your very life. It's a battle. It's, it's, a, it's a fight. It is. It's the biggest battle of your life. That's what this is. The call to Christianity is a battle. So now is the day of judgment for those who are begotten followers of Jesus. You know, Jonathan, just want a, another sidelight. There, there's a scripture in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, now is the day of judgment. And a lot of Christians look at that and they say, well, see, that's the day of judgment for everybody. That's not true. Yeah, but that's what the Apostle Paul said. Look it up. 
Look it up. Look where he's quoting from. That's in the bonus material. We're not going to go into that now. We don't have time. But now it's actually a day of judgment. That's what he's quoting from in Isaiah. We need to understand the context of the scriptures. And a day of judgment applies to you and I if we are true followers of Christ. So it's individuals that are being judged here and now. What are they judged for? Sacrificial faithfulness to God through Jesus, even unto death. Israel had the law as well as Jesus in the flesh. What does the true church have? Okay, so Israel had the law. They had the tangible law. They had the commandments. They had all of the, 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 the pieces of the law. They had their system. Well, before there were kings, they had the system of judges. They, and, and, and things were put in place. They had the books of the law that told them how to act. So they had a lot of tangibility. Okay, what does the true church have? Well, we also have Jesus, and we also have God's Holy Spirit, God's power and influence. First John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, is focusing on, on Israel had the law, but this is what we have. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye may not sin. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now see, there's, there's several things in that verse that bear some comment. First of all, let's talk about the fact that it says we have an advocate with the Father who's Jesus Christ. And what, just for the sake of, of, of clarity, Jonathan, what is an advocate? It means an intercessor, a counselor. Okay, it's somebody who sits with you and advocates for you, who sits with you and says, I'm with you on this. It's not a go-between. It's not a mediator. You know, when you have two people who are, are having a fight or having an argument, sometimes a mediator gets in between them. And the mediator's not on either side. The mediator's saying, whoa, 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 we're both at odds here. Let's see if we can work this out. We have an advocate. J Jesus doesn't sit between us and God. He sits with us before God. There's a huge difference there. And we need him to do that <laughs> right. because we are weak. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and, and this is the fight of our lives. So our judgment as Christians needs that advocate. And it says he's the propitiation for our sins. That's another word that you use every day, right? <laughs> Not at all. And basically it means a, a, a means of appeasing a propitiation. Okay, he's the appeasement of our sins. In other words, he takes care of the problems of our sins. He, he, he handles the issues of our sins, and that's what his ransom sacrifice did for us. So the advantage is the, the, the Israel, the nation, had the law. We have Jesus. He is our advocate sitting with us. The other advantage that Christians have is God's Spirit. Uh, chap John chapter 14, verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit that the Father will send in my name, it will teach you all things and will remind you of all that I said to you. So we have this sense, Jesus said, it's the, the Spirit is coming, it's going to be there, it's going to help you, it's going to guide you, it's going to direct you. This is a huge advantage. You've got Jesus on your side, and you've got the Spirit indwelling. You know, in, in 1 Corinthians 5, 17, it talks about becoming a new creature. How does that happen? The only way that happens is by God's Spirit dwelling within you. Not just sort of flashing before your eyes, but dwelling within you. So that's an important aspect of this whole thing. Okay, so we've got the, the, the advocate and we've got the spirit. 
These things help us in our being judged because the judgment is hard. And so we've got these things to help us along the way. So you can see God's mercy in giving us all of the help that we can need because even if we sin, even if we fall, we can get up again and we can dust ourselves off by the grace of God when we ask forgiveness and claim the, the, the blood of Christ because, Jonathan, our shed blood doesn't mean anything. It's, it doesn't. It's the blood of Christ. Yes. So now let's go to a different perspective on judgment, because there's a lot of Christianity that sees things very, very differently than we do. I should actually say that we see things differently than most of Christianity on this, okay? So let's just lay that out. Let's put it on the table. Uh, this is from uh, how, will you, how Will God Judge Someone Who Has Never Heard the Gospel? This is Dr. William Lane Craig. This is a hard question. How will God judge someone who's never heard the gospel? We're going we're gonna to develop this thought as we go. We'll get into it deeply in a couple of segments, but let's just introduce it here. The question here is, how does God judge people who have never heard the gospel of Christ? And I think that the Bible indicates that God judges the basis of the information that they have. He judges them on the basis of the light that they have. Um, so that those who have never heard of Christ will not be judged on the basis of whether they've placed their faith in Christ. That would be manifestly unfair. They've never heard of Jesus, so how could they place their faith in him? Rather, Paul says in Romans 1 and 2 that they will be judged on the basis of how they've responded to God's general revelation in nature and in conscience. Okay, so that's a take on it. And, and Jonathan, when we just finished describing the difficulty of following after Christ, you know, you've got to ask yourself, if that was the case, what, what the, Mr. Dr. William Lane Craig was saying, that, that okay, the, the world is basically judged on what they are able to know, and if they don't know the name of Christ, and look, billions of people have not known the name of Christ. Right, exactly. So what do you do with them? The issue at this point, and we're going to come back to this several times, but the issue in my mind is that the, the level of, of uh, activity, the level of responsiveness is so high for a Christian. You know, beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God uh, to... to um, Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Yeah, so a living sacrifice versus just being... Uh, accountable for what you can know. I mean, you know, when it says... That's a huge difference. It, it, it's, it's enormous. And so it, is there equity in that? See, I don't think there is. The question remains, what do you do with the rest of them? And we'll get to that. But it, that does not sound at all equitable to me when you look at what God requires of those who know Jesus and who are called according to called by God through Christ and given his spirit. So... When we look at those, the true church, the, the, the true followers of Christ, where did their judgment bring them? Or where does it bring them, I should say? And is it equitable? Well, Rick, their judgment brings them life. Okay, and we know that, John five twenty eight through 29. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in which all that are in their tombs shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of judgment. You know, and that sounds like such a simple thing. You do good, you get life. You do evil, it's judgment. 
but good, Jonathan, and we know this through scripture study, when it talks about doing good in scripture, it's not talking about, um, you know, getting an A on your spelling test. You know, it's not talking about helping a senior citizen cross the street. Those are good things. You know, it's not talking about cleaning up your mess. It's talking about good is godly good. Good is spiritual good. Good is giving to the poor. Good is is sacrificing your will for the will of God through Christ. Good is laying your life down for others. That's not the good that the world typically sees. That's the good in this verse. So you got to see that, you know, doing good gives you a resurrection of life. Doing good, being faithful unto death is what brings this resurrection of life. Now, here's the other thing. The other side of the issue for those who are called out is if they are entirely unfaithful to this calling, it brings them death. There's no eternal destruction or eternal torment, it brings them death. We know that from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So, Jonathan, this is a dramatic case that this is describing. And in verses 4 and 5, it describes a lot of very positive, strong spiritual things. This verse, the death here, does not apply to the, the average person who goes to church. No, because this is a spirit begotten. One. Right. Right, and, and, and it lays out so many things. In the case of those who've been enlightened, that's what God's Spirit is. Taste the heavenly gift. Not just had an emotional uh, epiphany. Emotion has nothing to do with it. It's much bigger than that. Uh, been made partakers of God's Spirit. Not just sort of sampled it from the outside in, but had it work from the inside out. Tasted the good word. In other words, really understood the, the, the word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away, if they make a choice to walk away from that, there's nothing left for them except death because they've used up the ransom of Jesus for them. But Rick, what about those who are not totally faithful but are still true? Okay, and see, that, that's, that's, that's a really important and interesting point. We don't have time to get into that, but God does have mercy for those who are faithful but not completely faithful even unto death. But, you know, they're, they're, they're trying, and, and maybe they fall more than they should, and they could do better, but they don't. But they're not, they're not turning their back on Christ. They're not rejecting Christ. No, 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 received. not at all. They're just, they're, just, they're just falling prey to their own weaknesses more than they should be. Um, our podcast number 590, Is Oil Really Important?, is a really good lesson on that. It's the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, and it helps us to understand that part of the equation. So thank you, thank you for bringing that up. So w- what's the equitable judgment lesson here for those who are true followers of Christ? Well, Rick, God gives the true church significant advantage with his Holy Spirit and Jesus as advocate. His mercy is clear as he allows for those who lack but try. The trial for eternal and immortal life requires strong, righteous judgment. So God judges the church, the true church, the spirit-begotten ones, faithful unto death, hard, in a hard way. There's no getting around it. 
It's not an easy thing. Well, if he's going to hand out immortality, deathlessness, he better pick the right ones. And you'd better have hard experiences. Oh, yeah. So, definitely. So there, there's equity in this. And there's mercy because we have the advocate. We have the Holy Spirit. We have one another. We have the Word of God. So we have the tools. And you know what, Jonathan? We'll never be perfect on this side. You're right. But we can move our intentions in that direction. So once again, we see God's hard judgments to be seen not only as merciful, but also very purposeful. A nation and a called out people are judged strongly and yet with grace. Is this always God's pattern? As we keep this podcast conversation going, this very brief break allows us to tell you more about one of your hosts, Rick. Aside from being a student of the Bible for nearly 50 years, did you know he only drinks decaf coffee? Can you imagine if that detailed, passionate about extensive research in the Bible mind added caffeine to the equation? Jonathan would probably never get a word in. So thank you, Rick, for staying away from caffeine. As a listener, you never have to worry about making your voice heard. We love to answer your questions and respond to your comments at ChristianQuestions.com and all our social media channels. Let's throw it back to Rick and Jonathan. We can thus far observe that God is, in fact, judging with firmness and grace. But this pattern will be altered in our next example. The common denominator so far has been people who are chosen by lineage or called to sonship. Now we look at a system that takes advantage of grace, but takes advantage not in a good way. You know, John, that, uh, Jonathan, that, uh, that, that bumper, there, it always cracks me up. I know, because you're naturally caffeinated. Yeah, can you imagine? Can you even imagine? When I used to, I stopped drinking coffee because it literally started to make me shake and it gave me palpitations. And boy, you think I talk fast now. It was it was untenable for anybody around me. Like, really, oh, what man. is wrong with you? I don't know. I don't know, but it's really good. You can't. <laughs> I had to stop. It was, it was, it was too much. <laughs> anyway, so, so, you know, we've gone through God's judgment of the nation of Israel. And we mentioned, but we didn't show, but we mentioned there's mercy involved there. We yes. looked at the judgment of the true church, and we talked about a little bit the fact that there is mercy there, not only with the Advocate and the Holy Spirit, but also for those who don't fully, fully, fully go as far as they should. There's still mercy there. What's our third judgment for consideration? False systems of Christianity. Okay, so now we're not talking about people, individuals, we're talking about systems. What are the consequences? Destruction. Ooh. Matthew plain thirteen thirty. Plain and simple. Okay. That's right. Matthew okay. thirteen thirty. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay. So you have this sense of allow everything to kind of go along and just it, it's going to happen and then at the end Jesus instructs through the parable of the wheat and the tares that the tares are bound up in bundles and burned but the wheat is protected and gathered into the barn so there is a dramatic difference between the wheat's destiny and the tares destiny so the big question is what does all that mean well we'll get to that in just a couple of minutes. First, though, let's go to a soundbite from Paul Washer. Now, Jonathan, I got to say, there's a lot of doctrinal things that we really disagree with this 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 man on, but mm-hmm. I deeply appreciate the passion that he holds his doctrinal views with. And you know, he's a he seems to be a studied individual. I think that a lot of them are are, are misguided in terms of true scriptural meaning, 
but I just got to say that I have great respect for his thorough conviction in what it is that he believes. And in this, in this soundbite, is, he's talking about false teachers are God's judgment. False teachers are God's judgment. Okay, and the first word of this gets cut off. It's it, he's starting and he's saying these preachers. So let's listen to what he has to say. Are God's judgment on people who don't want God, but in the name of religion, plan on getting everything their carnal heart desires. That's why a Joel Osteen is raised up. Those people who sit under him are not victims of him. He is the judgment of God upon them because they want exactly what he wants, and it's not God. And you can line them all up along with him. That's where it is. For ourselves, teachers in accordance to their own desires. So you get a Benny Hinn in there who all he wants to do is tell you you're going to have a Mercedes Benz. Those people aren't victims. They're, he is God's judgment upon them. So really what he's saying is the false teachers, he, he threw out a couple of names. There are no, no need to comment on individual names. But what he's saying is that these people are being judged of God right now, and because they have a carnal heart, God gave them teachers to accentuate, to, to follow that carnal heart. I have a hard time following that, because I don't believe, I believe maybe a few of the people in those congregations are in that category, but I think a, a lot of them don't know any different. They truly, truly don't know any different. And so we would see it differently, but again, it's an inter interesting perspective on how God judges or how he doesn't judge, as the case may be. So we're talking about the false systems of Christianity. Let's be a little bit more specific, Jonathan. Who specifically is being judged here in this segment? Well, Rick, any and every so do a Christian entity or belief that diminishes Christ. Okay, any pseudo-Christian entity or belief, anyone is being judged. Okay, any, any of them. Notice we didn't say people. We talked about entity and, and, and belief system. And there's a reason we're, we're looking at it that way. Uh, Matthew 13, 25, back to another verse from the parable of the wheat and the tares. But while his men were sleeping, his enemies came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. Okay, so the enemy came and sowed tares. You know, men were sleeping. Jesus gives this parable after Matthew chapter 24, when he talks about when he's going to return. And basically, he gave the parable of, the, of the, the wise and foolish virgins before this parable to say, it's going to be a long time. And then he gives this, um, no, I'm sorry, this is not, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm thinking of the wrong parable. I'm thinking of the parable of the talents, sorry. We're studying that on Sunday, by the way. That's how, ah, how I, that's I went why. down that. <laughs> Scratch that thought. The, the, the point is, Jesus is saying that while men slept, there was there was uh, uh, corruption sown in this wonderful wheat field. And it's a picture of the age of the gospel, which has been going on now for 2,000 years. So it's important to realize this parable is talking about a 2,000-year period of time as Jesus references the harvest time of the wheat at the end of the call of the church. Therefore, you can't look at this parable as an illustration about individuals because nobody lives for 2,000 years. That's right. So this is really uh, rather classes, not individuals. Okay, so kind of give us an overview of the, the, divining, the, 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 um, the dividing of the classes. Well, bad guys, evil sowers equal the devil. Chairs, tares are children of the evil one equal false Christianity or their beliefs. Okay, false Christianity 
and its beliefs. It's, it's not individuals. And this is really important in looking at this particular parable. So what are these systems then judged for? Imitating the true we for personal and political gain. Okay. And all I got to say is if we look at history and we look at the corruption of Christian church systems, look at how they got involved in things that Jesus would have never brought us to and did things that Jesus would have never sanctioned. So how did that happen? Because it was this involvement, it, it got bigger than it was supposed to in ways and, and, and dabbled in areas that Christianity was not supposed to. And there's not good words about these things in any part of Scripture. Second Corinthians eleven thirteen to 15. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So, Jonathan, you have in this, you've got people that seem to become involved in Christianity just to exploit it. Which even the Apostle Paul warned us about that. Well, yes, yes. So we're, we're just touching on a few scriptures here. But you've got this sense that deceitful workers, false apostles disguising themselves... So wolves in sheep's clothing. It's yeah. not a pretty picture. So these are these are these are individuals that are are purposefully taking the goodness and the grace of the gospel and saying, "Hey, I can make money on this. Hey, I can gain power with this. Hey, I can have influence with this. Hey, I can draw all kinds of people after me with this." That's not what Christianity is. Okay? That becomes the terror-like system that we're talking about. Okay, now, on the other hand, well, other hand of the darkness, if you will, Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Now, some of these, Jonathan, may be, may be that they started out well, and perhaps, I don't know, but perhaps have, have, have taken something very, very good and applied it to something very, very bad. Very possible. Makes sense. And so I think we've got both of those things working here, but it all adds up to false systems of Christianity. And there is judgment for those false systems. We can't get away from God's judgment. Okay? The true church we talked about in the last segment has to deal with God's judgment in a very specific way, and they are held to a very high standard. And the church systems are being looked at by God. And you had mentioned, what, what's their end? What's, what happens to them? Destruction. Okay, there's, there's, no, there, there's no mercy with the systems. No, none. Because they, and, and we're going to get to that in, in just a second. I just want to read a, a question that came in um, uh, through email. And a really good question that we're going to touch on a little bit here and then get into a little bit more in the next segment. It says, how would God handle judgment on those who claim they know Christ? They go to church regularly, do their hand-waving techniques. However, by their ungodly words and ungodly actions, they show they are not followers of Christ. Does God turn individuals like that over to a reprobate mind? 
Okay, you know, so this is a a very important question with a very important suggestion. Like, well, what happens to that? And we need to, to, to handle that carefully because one thing you don't want to do is lump a bunch of individuals into a very narrow uh, end result, and we don't know who they are really. Okay, so we, gotta, we want to walk a little carefully as we deal with that, but I really, really appreciate the question coming in, and we'll pick it up and, and, and add to it as we go through the, the end of this segment and the beginning of the next segment. So let's get back to the systems, and this is going to come into play, this question. Where does this, the judgment of the systems bring them, and will that judgment be equitable? These beliefs or systems reap destruction. Okay. So Second you, Peter 2, 1 through 3. Okay, so you really just keep saying that same word again and again and again. You got it. Okay. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly induce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgments from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So even though these things were clearly judged, even at their beginnings, God saw fit to let them develop, let the tares grow with the wheat, as a test for a comparison to true Christianity. And now, Jonathan, in this verse, I think it, it handles some of the things that Paul Washer said earlier. He was saying that these false teachers have come as a judgment upon as a judgment upon the people that are that are following them, here it says many will follow their sen- their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. In their greed, they will exploit they will exploit you with false words. Mm-hmm. So the idea of being exploited indicates that you're being taken advantage of. That's right. So and, and Rick, how blatant they are to Christ followers when when they see this happening in the systems. But how hypnotizing it is for those members sitting there and in, engulfed in it. Yeah. Well, and it can be. It can very well be almost a hypnotic event because you are drawn in to an environment and it's a very emotional environment and it, and it, it makes you feel good. Now, you know, that brings us back to that question. You know, those who go to the church and, and get involved in those things. Then the questioner says, but by their ungodly words and ungodly actions show they are not followers of Christ. So in other words, you go there, you get your emotional fix, you feel good, and then you go back to your life, and your life is not a good one. What is that saying? See, that is being a living contradiction. And to me, Jonathan, the first thing that shows, honestly, and and we'll leave it for this segment, is that God's Spirit is not indwelling in those individuals. Because they're just they're they're going to going to church, feeling happy, going back to, to their to their life, and you know, doing whatever they do in, in an ungodly, immoral fashion. Just do, doesn't work. Okay, so now let's get back to the judgment on the systems. Matthew thirteen again, the the parable of the wheat and the tares. Thirteen forty to forty two. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out his, of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So you can see the destruction of the systems, and those systems go down, and it, it, you know, it, this is not the Gehenna fire. The Gehenna fire is a symbol of second death. But this is a furnace of fire. It's a controlled burn. It's, it's different, and it's there to destroy the systems. 
So God is not taking these systems and saying, oh, there's a, there's, you know, 3% of good here and there's 7% of good there and there's 12% of good there. I think I'll save it. They're going down. They're going down completely because they have corrupted the word and the will of God. What's the equitable judgment lesson here? Well, Rick, God clearly hates hypocrisy and greed, and these systems and beliefs will meet their end, while those involved will need to face the errors and results of their ways. Make no mistake, those who are preaching the things that are against the will of God and the word of God and and the way of God will have to be accountable. They're not going to heaven. They're going to have to be accountable, and they really do come to play in uh, our next segment. So God is really no nonsense when it comes to true righteousness. This is both scary and comforting at the same time. God's judgment is absolutely firm with false systems. How does he handle the rest of humanity? If we asked Rick, Jonathan, and the CQ Contribution team to answer our topical questions in five minutes or less, rather than in several chapters over 90 minutes, they'd probably get a little stressed out. Plus, they love painting that bigger picture by looking at several real-world media perspectives, historical facts, and scripture. That's why some answers may come quickly. But we love taking a look at the bigger questions that aren't so easy. We have already seen how God's mercy works with his justice when judging people who should know better. When it comes to the rest of the human race, it can be argued that they may or may not know enough to even be accountable. God's judgment of these billions, a lot of folks have questions on it, but God's judgment of these billions is truly masterful. I mean, Jonathan, when we look at how God handles all of those who don't know, it is it is absolutely awe-inspiring. And so, folks, in this segment, we want to get down to what happens to the everybody else. We've got the systems of false Christianity doomed for destruction. We had the nation of Israel being judged to being cast off, cast aside. Okay, there's mercy there. We'll get to that next segment. And, and we've got the judgment of the individuals running for the prize of the high calling that the Apostle Paul calls about, being judged very, 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 very carefully and being held to a very, 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 very high standard. What about everyone else? The fourth judgment for consideration. The human race. And what are the consequences? Life or death. Okay. How do you know? Galatians 6, 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Okay. Flesh equals corruption. Spirit equals equals life. Now, we're taking that verse and we're kind of, we're, I'm, I'm stretching it just a little bit, okay, because we're talking about the, 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 the world and, you know, they're not going to sow to the spirit anytime soon. No, because <laughs> they were not spirit begotten. Right, right. So what do we do with them? What do we do with those who don't know? Let's go to a soundbite from another one from Dr. William Lane Craig. Remember, he was talking about uh, accountability and how the world is accountable based on what they know. He goes a little little deeper into this, and this is really an interesting line of reasoning. So let's listen. Paul says, in nature, all men at any time in history, any place in the world, can know that there is an eternal and powerful deity who has created the world. And in chapter 2 he says that God's moral law is written on the hearts of all people, even those who do not have 
the Old Testament law, so that we do by nature what the law requires. We have an instinctual grasp of right and wrong. And so those who have never heard the gospel will be judged on the basis of their response to God's general revelation in nature and conscience. Now, that does not mean that someone can be saved apart from the work of Christ. See, now, that's a hard, that's a hard thing to connect those dots. Yeah, really. Okay, so he's talking about Romans chapter one, verses twenty and twenty-one, and a lot of a lot of uh, churches and preachers quote not necessarily these just these two verses, but Romans chapter one is a really good example of the apostle Paul making a legitimate argument that there is reason to know God even if you don't know Christ, and so Romans one twenty and twenty-one. For since the creation of the world. His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Okay, they became futile in their speculations, their foolish heart was darkened. You know, the interesting thing about this, Jonathan, is this is talking a little bit in the past tense, isn't it? It is. Okay. Right. And, you know, as, as, as a lot of uh, uh, theologians look at these verses, they like to say, well, it's actually future tense. But, you know, it's kind of saying this is sort of a concluded um, process. And I think the meaning of these verses is, look, God put his stamp of his wisdom and power out in creation. It has been seen, and it has been taken, and it has been corrupted. I think that's what the Apostle's saying. Now, you can say, well, look, it says, you know, you know, people are without excuse because they can see nature. Yes, they can. And should they know that there is a God? I think they should. But what if they don't? Is that a reason enough to say, okay, that's the end of their, of the end of their eternal life because they can't see God in nature? And, and I think that there's a flaw in that reasoning, Okay. Each and every human being is judged, but are they judged based on just that kind of knowledge? So, so you've got to ask yourself, well, what are they judged for? And, and that's the, our next question. What are they being judged for if they're being judged? And we'll get to when in a minute, but what are they going to be judged for? Well, Rick, all aspects of their lives, uh, their deeds, for example, Romans 2, 5 and 6. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. So I think that in Romans 2, it's talking about judgment of the people, the average person, right? Yeah, definitely. Now, is it talking about that judgment in the past, the present, or the future? Future, because it says who will render future. Okay, see, that's a really important point. Because if everybody in the world is being judged now, why does the apostle say it's they're going to have this judgment rendered in the future time? So this is a this is a balancing act, you know. And when we look at these folks again, let's go back to the question that that came in, you know, about those folks who go to go to church, you know, and but don't live a godly life. I think they fall into this category. I think they fall exactly into this category. Now, this is a broad, wide category because you've got those who are begotten of God's Spirit and then you've got everybody else. And the group that's begotten of God's Spirit is a teeny, tiny little group and the everybody else is massive. 
So within that massiveness also come friends of those, supporters of those, those who appreciate the gospel, who love God and Christ, but are not dedicated to to sacrifice. There's nothing wrong with that. They'll be blessed, but they're going to be judged in the future along with these folks. I just think they're going to have a much better time of it because they're living a better life right now. That makes sense. And we know that because we, we talked about all aspects of their lives being judged. Romans 2, 5, and 6 said that. What else is going to be judged? The intentions and words. Okay, their intentions and their words. How do we know? Jesus told us, Matthew twelve thirty three to 37. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out that which fills the heart. The good man brings out his good treasure, what is good, and the evil man brings out his evil treasure, what is evil. So, but I, okay, hang sorry. on a second right there. Because, okay. see, I think that, again, going back to that question, you know, those folks who, who go to church and live it up in church, but then after church, live it down, way down, in the gutter down, I think this is describing them. And their it's, intentions and their words. Yes. And so you can, on the surface, look all good, but how do you live your every day? And so, you know, you're, you're giving it, you're, you're kind of zeroing in, and God is watching, and God is watching, and our judgment, or, or the judgment of the world, and everybody in it in the future is based on what they do today. What does Jesus say next in verses 36 and 37 of Matthew 12? But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So there's judgment here, right? And it's future, Rick, in the future day of judgment. Okay, so by your words you will be. Not you are, but you will be. See, and I think that's important to understand. The world meets its judgment later. The true church meets its judgment now. The judgment of the, the church begins with the house of God. Yes, Absolutely. And, and you know, it, there's no mistake that we have Israel as, as a pattern for us because they were God's chosen people amongst the rest of the world. And God was harder on them. And I think that's a great picture for us. We're given much, and because of that, much is required. Okay? So we've got that all aspects of, of the people's lives will be judged. Uh, their intentions and their words will be judged, focusing on the future judgment. So let's... Go to the last question then. Where does their judgment bring them, and will it be equitable? Well, Rick, it brings them before God in a new environment. Okay, see, the whole point of the ransom price was to save humanity by paying the price for Adam. That was the point of Jesus' coming, okay? We know that because lots of prophecies give us a sense of what the future is going to be looking like. Jeremiah 31, 29 to 30. In those days, they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. So there's judgment there, right? Yes. Is it past judgment? Is there past, present, or future? That's future. So every time we look at this, we see them being judged in the future. It's no mistake that that's the way it is. That's how God's mercy operates. And when you have the the dilemma 
of what does God do with those people who don't know Christ now, the billions who have lived who never knew the name of Christ, the answer is he judges them later. In an environment like Jeremiah describes, where they're going to be accountable for their own things and whatever it is they inherited is not going to count anymore. You know, and Jonathan, you and I both know that you and I are both imperfect, right? Oh, big time. <laughs> Speaking for myself. <laughs> well, look, we've known each other long enough. You know I got faults. Okay? So here's the thing. You know, a lot of times we look at it and say, you know, we're, we inherited this or that, you know, from our parents or our grandparents, you know, whatever it is. And, you know, sometimes stubbornness can be a really good thing if it's used in a good way, but it can really, really, really bollocks up the matter of spirituality. Oh, okay. You know, and I'm a very stubborn person. And, and, you know, again, it can be for evil or it can be for good. So the idea is that it will come a time where your own character is going to be the thing that's judged in the future. This is not for the true church, but this is for the everybody else. Jesus can only bring them so far, okay? He gives them his ransom price and gives them the opportunity to live. Humanity, by virtue of their free moral choice, will have to do their part. And this is the answer. What happens to the everybody else? This scripture, Jonathan, we've quoted a million times. Well, maybe not a million, but you know what I mean. First Timothy 2, 3 to 6 is a powerful set of verses. This is right and is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. This was attested at the right time. So there's a lot of things in this, but it says God desires everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now he's talking about everyone. He's not talking about the called out ones. No. And we know that because in the next verse it says that Jesus was provided as a mediator between God and humankind. Right. The true church has an advocate, which is very different than the mediator. Exactly. So it's a different application. This is God's merciful judgment. They're not going to get away with, you know, everybody says, well, if I don't have to worry now, I can do whatever I want. Eh, wrong answer. Rick, I love the word knowledge in this verse. It means full discernment. That means all of those that have never heard the name of Christ after the resurrection will have full discernment, come to a complete knowledge of the truth. Right. That's full. merciful. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and you know, and, and it's important, you know, so, so. Trish just handed me a note. She says, I'm confused. <laughs> so the world is waiting to be judged by what they're doing today. What about the learning process later on? And the answer is both of those things apply. What we do today sets us up for where we begin to learn tomorrow. And this is what we're talking about for the world, for the everybody else. What they do today sets them up for where they begin to learn tomorrow. You are choosing where to pick up the line of your own destiny by how you act. And if you act against godliness and goodness and righteousness, be sure that when you are raised, you will continue so until you decide to change within yourself. There's a process of learning and growing through but it. But the more righteous and kind person, kind-hearted you are, the quicker you will develop and grow Absolutely. towards that knowledge. Yeah, and, and there is no doubt about that. So there is a powerful, powerful combination of things that we're looking at. The future 
is important uh, because it's the day of judgment and what the people do now really does play a part in that. And one of my favorite things to bring up, a day to the Lord is a thousand years. And how do we know that this future day of judgment will be a thousand year period for the world? Well, when Satan will be bound a thousand years, he will not be able to interfere with God giving full discernment to humanity. So that's a merciful thing. Yeah. And, and, you know, we're going to get into that a little bit more in the next segment as well. But the whole point is God's mercy allows those who really didn't know about God to figure it out enough time to grow through it. So the world will be saved, ransomed and then given the opportunity for full discernment, as you said. So what's our equitable judgment lesson? God requires full accountability of everyone. This accountability will be in the context of the ransom having been paid. Life and righteousness will be their order of the day. So the order of the day is not going to be sin and death and all of that stuff. It's going to be different. That's how this all really ends up working. It really is inspiring to see God's judgment of humanity reflect his deep and abiding love for all of us. God's judgment, again, prevails in the context of his mercy. Does this combination apply to nations as well? Every episode, we cover a lot of ground. Part of gathering all the information and drawing conclusions is having a thorough conversation. Thanks to all our listeners for all your feedback every week. Rick and Jonathan want to hear more comments and questions. Talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com, through all our social media channels, and download our app by searching Christian Questions in your app store. Now, since we have puzzle pieces everywhere, let's put those pieces together. Here we need to be careful to separate out the elements. We soon shall see that God's judgment upon nations as systems is similar to his judgment on false Christianity. Caution needs to be in place as we proceed, always remembering that God's judgment upon all people is tempered with grace. And, and that's one of the things I think that we need to, to, to walk away from with it, this, this whole discussion. God's judgment when it comes to people always has a, an aspect of grace attached. Now look, people can override that, and they can choose to override that, and they will receive the, the reward for that, which is, which is death. But God gives opportunity. He gives ample opportunity to everyone to be able to find him, not just in a, in a sort of nebulous kind of way, like, well, I think I might know, but like you were saying in the last segment, in a full disclosure kind of way. So our fifth judgment for consideration is what? Rick, it's the governments of this world. Okay. And what are the consequences upon the governments of this world? Destruction. Okay. You like that word today, don't you? I do. <laughs> Second Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Well, Rick, since Satan is the prince of this world, the nations under his control must be removed. And, and see, I think this is a really important point. It's very similar to the, to the, to the picture, if you noticed, of, of the false systems of Christianity. Burned up. The world burned up. Is the earth being burned up? No. No, no, no. That's, that's not what the scriptures teach. But it's those systems that will be burned up. And, you know, being burned up means destroyed. You know, when something is reduced to ashes... It is not remotely recognizable or repairable. It's gone. 
That's the point of this being burned up. Remember, systems overall against God meet destruction. People overall will meet with life, the opportunity for life, a great opportunity for life, no matter what age they live in, or death if they, after that great opportunity, decide they don't want it. So when we talk about the governments of this world, Jonathan, specifically who's being judged? Every kingdom of man not standing for the true God. Okay. And that would be a lot of kingdoms. <laughs> right now, absolutely. Okay. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. You notice it doesn't say in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will draw out of one kingdom or another or draw pieces out of these kingdoms to collectively create a new kingdom. No. It says in the days of those those kings, the God of heaven will set up another kingdom, a kingdom which will never be destroyed. It is different than all of them, and it crushes the others. They are not repairable afterwards. So every kingdom of man not standing for the true God is, is, under, is, is, is doomed for destruction. Every one. What are they judged for? The rampant idolatry that carries men away from God. You know, idolatry is very underrated in our world today. We don't talk about idolatry enough, and the reason is because we are so incredibly surrounded by it, we don't even recognize it as such anymore. But pretty much almost everything that we look at and and do and, and have part of has some idolatry running through it somewhere, and we need to be careful. Idolatry is anything that we rise up before us that is in the place of God. Okay, there's a hugely amazing scripture in Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 10 and 11, when it, it, talking about the, the, the destiny of all idolatry. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus, you shall say to them, the gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. So in verse 10, Jeremiah is saying, God is the true God, the living God, the everlasting king. The nations can't endure his indignation. He becomes angry at the nations. And we know that that will be true. And that is the coming prophetic process of the time of trouble. But verse 11 it gives you the, the uh, qualifications for living or being destroyed. So read that, that quote again in verse 11. The gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth. How's that? Okay, so any gods, anything that we set up before God that didn't make the heavens and the earth, they're gone. They're done. Idolatry. Right. Idolatry. Yeah. So. Folks, how much of our systems, how much of our lives, how much of our thinking is idolatrous? All of that has to be wiped away. And in, in, in relation to humanity, individually, it's, it, it can be wiped out of each and every individual, and they can learn as they walk up what, what Isaiah calls the highway of holiness. But the systems of this world, 
they are idolatrous, and it says that they will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. So they're judged for this rampant idolatry, which runs through everything. Where does their judgment, the judgment of the governments of this world, where does it bring them, and will it be equitable? Well, Rick, the systems of governments will be utterly destroyed and replaced with God's own government through Jesus. Destroyed and replaced. Not refurbished. Destroyed and replaced. Second Peter 3.13 But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So you see, it's not the, the redoing of the present heavens and the earth. Okay, that's the important thing. The present heavens, the present uh, ecclesiastical systems, if you will, and the earth, the, 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 the earthly governments. So you've got the, the, the sort of the spiritual and the, and the earthly picture here. They're not going to be reworked. They're going to be replaced. And the beauty is they're replaced with what God started with at the very beginning. The man and the woman in the garden under God himself. So, you know, that sense of the, the looking for the renewed heavens and, and, and renewed earth, you know, the, the idea that you're going back to what was originally lost way back when. One last sound by Jonathan um, before we wrap this up. What happens to people who have never heard of the gospel? This is from The Beat. This is Alan Parr. And uh, he's going to be talking about those who just were not ever even capable of knowing the word of God or knowing of Jesus. And this is, again, interesting how he looks at those who are not capable. What happens to them? The third group of people includes those who are unable to have ever heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This could include babies who die prematurely or those who are mentally retarded. These are people who were mentally or physically unable to observe the creation. They couldn't violate their own conscience and they never had the opportunity to reject or accept Jesus Christ. Now the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about this smaller group of people. Some theologians will point to the example of King David who lost his son, and David seemed very confident that he would see his son again in heaven. Other theologians will point to the character of God and say, well, because God is compassionate, he is slow to anger, he is abounding in love, that it would be logical to assume that God would not send a group of people who were unable, either mentally or physically, to make a decision to accept or reject Jesus Christ to hell. But we must always remember that God is not logical or illogical. He is theological, which means there are some decisions that he may make that we may not understand. So, first of all, he's saying, I don't really don't know. And, you know, I give him credit for that. Uh, but, you know, he, the idea is that, well, you know, maybe those, those folks, you know, go, get to go to heaven uh, because they didn't really do anything really bad because they were not capable, you know, of, of, of uh, making those choices. And the beauty of God's plan is you don't need to wonder. You don't. Because Jesus died for every man, woman, and child who ever lived. So those who have lived, whether they were capable or not, still get that resurrection in the future and get to get that judgment. Now, what if they were, if they died as a little tiny baby, didn't have time to make any mistakes? Well, then they get to grow up in an environment where righteousness reigns. And they get to learn from the mistakes of the billions of people that will surround them. So God is merciful. They don't go to heaven. They come back to earth. Why? Because the earth was created for humanity. That's why. 
That's why God said, be fruitful, multiply, f- and fill the earth, and subdue it. Make it your home, because that's what I made it for. So the peoples of earth maintain their regions. This is, again, prophetically looking at this thing in terms of God's judgment. So we looked at the systems of government, you know, kibosh. All right, but the peoples of earth maintain their regions and their uniqueness, and that's what thrives under God. Listen to this prophecy in Zechariah eight twenty-two and 23. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from all nations will grasp the garment of a Jew saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. This is a beautiful picture. This is a future picture. Many peoples and mighty nations will seek the Lord God in Jerusalem. And they're going to go through Israel, seek the, the, the garment of a Jew, hold on to the saying, hey, we've heard that God is with you. Remember we said earlier how God cast Israel off as a nation? Yes. And we said, but, rejected. but there was grace. Mm-hmm. Here's the grace right here, because they are the leadership, the centerpiece of God's earthly kingdom. Why do we know that? The scripture just told us that. Let's look at uh, Micah 4, 1 to 3. The peoples of the earth have been freed from sin and idolatry. Remember, idolatry is such a big thing. And finally, are learning godly righteousness. And this is, again, this is God's judgment. See, Jonathan, God's judgment is not, yes, you did this and you did that. God's judgment is also, you can now learn how to do this. You can now learn how to be that. That's part of God's judgment, and that's what Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 is describing. It's describing the growth process that is part of God's judgment of the world. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob. There he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. So you see the process here? In the last days, the mountain will be established in the top of the mountains, and the people will come and say, let's go and learn? See, God's judgment has learning involved. God's judgment is not a final proclamation. It's the period of process in which they can develop That's the beauty of these prophecies. They show us it's not just black and white. It's learning how to stand. And it says, and they're going to learn not to have war anymore. They're going to learn righteousness. They're going to learn to hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And they're going to learn to not be, be at odds with one another because they will be under God. That's God's judgment. I don't know about you, but I kind of like it. Oh, that's exciting. It's exciting. It's perfect. It is. And, and, it, and it says, and never again will they train for war. Never again. Why? Because they learn how to be godly righteous. That is God's judgment. What's our final equitable judgment lesson? 
God will ultimately remove any and every system of man that promotes godlessness and replaces them all with a godly, righteous, perfect, and eternal earthly government. So we can see that when we look at the judgments of God, we've seen it from Israel as a nation to the the, the people of God chosen to follow after Christ to the false Christian systems to the people of the earth, the everybody else, to the governments of this world, God has a plan, and his judgments vary depending on the time, the circumstances, the people, and the system. And what he does is equitably takes each and brings them where they can go and need to go. Some systems need utter destruction, but for the people, they need the opportunity to be able to be raised in Christ. And that's why he came. And God's judgment upon these people will be wonderful. It will be equitable. It will be life-giving, not life-taking. Let's see the judgments of God as they really are. Think about it. Folks, listen. We really, really appreciate you, uh, you, you're, you're listening to us. We really want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us and review us. We greatly, greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week... Coming up next week, here's a question. Am I an arrogant Christian? Hmm. Talk to you then. <laughs> 